look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More Than Money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. Welcome to another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR. You're here with Dave and Andrew this week. Andrew, thanks for joining me. I know Faisal's away uh, and isn't able to be here today. It's always a pleasure. It is a pleasure, and thanks for having me. Um, you know, once again, it's the first of the year, but uh, we keep doing it a little bit more and more. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, you know, we've got. Uh, I think we've got a terrific show today. We, of course, we ended the quarter last quarter uh, with a lot of volatility that scared a lot of people. We've gotten through the first uh, month of this year. Uh, January was a pretty good month and a sharp rebound. Yeah. The question is, what comes next, right? Well, and volatility, yep. I think, is a fair comment. It's here to stay. Yep. Um, uh, you know, and even this week alone, like we, we had a pretty good week for the most part. And there's a, you know, here's Friday. Yeah. And what happens? Yeah. Yeah. You know, Thursday, Friday kicks in. We see some volatility again. That's now right. we've got, we're going to have a great uh, guest join us today. We've got Philip Peterson coming in uh, in the middle of the show and. Um, Philip is going to be talking about what to expect in 2019. What does the math mm-hmm. tell us, right? Uh, we've got to separate the math and the emotion. Uh, and Philip can um, can speak English on this topic and, and well, help us all understand it. English is, 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 is not a second language for Phil. Yep. And, and he does a great job at actually going through this with individual. Let's talk about um, sort of the, the water cooler chats. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, as we were thinking about preparing for the show and sort of reviewing the week, it was an interesting week. It, it didn't have a ton to do with with uh, the market, the kinds of conversations we were having uh, when, you know, you and I sat down and thought about it a lot was were about income um, questions. So, you know, as yeah. you're obviously preparing your portfolio, as you're moving into retirement, as you're living in retirement, you need to sort of draw down yeah. on your portfolio, on your savings to support your lifestyle. And there is a ton of confusion around that, right? How much, first of all, do I need to draw? Is that amount sustainable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where do I get it from? If I've got a bunch of different kinds of accounts, where you know, where should I draw it from from a tax perspective? All of these kinds of questions, and so I, you know, we kind of thought let's let's well, maybe have a conversation about that. Well, and a lot of that has to do with just just sheer not understanding of what retirement's going to be like and how that's going to fit into their their plans. And yeah. and and you know, the first question I tend to ask when we go through this is, you know, well, you know, how much do you need? Is that monthly or annually? Because you know what, we have to figure that out. We have to sort of base somewhere and figure out what we're going to do. Well, I, I, you know, you you raise an interesting point right off the bat. How much you need seems like an obvious question that you would have an answer to if you're moving into retirement. It's not obvious. No, it's not. It right. never is. And you know, there's there's a bunch of fear things uh, involved there. You know, once I'm leaving, I'm leaving the workforce. I've earned this much my entire life. I've gotten used to to taking my paycheck. Now I'm going to draw it from somewhere else. That's a fear factor. And then of course, I don't know what I'm spending on. And right. most people don't, and it's not a bad thing. It's just, you know, I it's go a reality. buy groceries. It's a reality. Yeah. And then, you know, you, you also said something interesting. The way people think about it, some people think in pre-tax income, some uh, communicate in after-tax income. Let me be clear about this. Nobody lives on pre-tax income. You all live, everybody lives on after-tax income. That's right. So tax becomes an important piece of the conversation. But so let's talk about this This how much. I had a, I had a meeting um, with a couple this, uh, this past week, and we were trying to dial that number in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now they're pre-retirement, so they're still thinking about it. And it was a, it was actually it was a difficult conversation for them. They they hadn't really stopped to think about it. The immediate response had to do well. This is how much we spend today, right? Well, yeah, but you got savings. You might have RSP contributions in there. You could have kids, you know, still going yep. to school. There are a whole bunch of stuff mixed in there that may, in fact, not reflect what your lifestyle cost is. 
That's right. Right? So so pausing for a moment and taking a look at what your current spend is on the things that you currently spend on. But then here's the issue. Um, Faisal and I have talked over the past couple of weeks about this um, exercise, collecting the 31 things that you're going to do. So mm-hmm. with this couple, because they were struggling a little bit with it, we pulled out, uh, you know, we got on the whiteboard, and I said, okay, what I want each of you to do is your homework is to go home and separately think about the 31 things that you want to do in retirement, okay? Now, okay. don't compare those lists until you're done, until you've, you've got them locked down. And then what you're going to do is compare them, and you're going to see that there will be some that are, you know, separate as individuals, yep. and there'll be some that'll be overlapping. But then you can start to put some cost to it, right? Whittle it down to figure it out and put some cost to it. Uh, and that seems like a bit of a daunting task. It doesn't have to be a daunting task, but it gives no. you a sense then of what this retirement lifestyle is going to look like. What would you envision? Now, that's really important to a guy like you as a certified financial planner because until we have that number, right, it's real difficult to well, take the process any further. This is it. And, and you know, those 31 items, you know, they don't have to be all in one shot. They could yep. be over the course of your retirement. Uh, and think about it. People are living longer. So living 20 and 30 years in retirement is not... Uh, an undauntable task. It just seems big right now because I'm going to write them all down and this is what I plan to do. And maybe some of them will change. Maybe some will be the same. Of course they will. Okay. So let's say, um, let's say a couple or an individual, whatever the case may be, gets their number dialed in. Now we know the lifestyle cost. You know, the second, the second thing that we always get is, is can I do it? So if we talk to people, the question is always, well, will I, will I have enough? Am I going to outlive my money? Am I going to run out? So the question mm-hmm. is, is it sustainable? Once you've got the number, is it sustainable? Well, and that's when we really have to sort of put pen to paper and look at things carefully. And what I mean by that is, okay, now we've, we, we figured out a number. What are the savings that we have? Um, what are the other items, whether it be pensions, Canada pension plan, old age security, or other, or even the guaranteed income supplement, um, what are the next steps in regards to figuring out what that income is going to be? Because these are all little buckets that are going to pour in to that paycheck that you're going to get once a month or twice a month. What's your thought about, um, I mean, CPP and OAS, Canada Pension Plan and Old Age Security, people mm-hmm. tend to discount as small amounts. From a financial planning perspective, maybe you can comment on that. Well, I don't think that they're small amounts. I think they, they add to, to a bigger um, nest egg moving forward. Um, there's a lot of fear that the CPP won't have money, and that, that was done 15 years ago. We're not in that same boat anymore. I'm very confident that that's going to move forward, um, and we're going to have that in the future uh, for the next generation. Or two, but it can have a material impact when you're financial planning. It can have yes. a material impact in the sustainability of of somebody's portfolio and somebody's savings. Absolutely, it can because you know if you're drawing CPP, that means your portfolio is not having to sustain right. as heavy a payout on a monthly basis or a quarterly and annually, however you do it. Um, so that being said, if you have those pieces in place, it'll certainly make your life way easier by knowing those things. And they're really not hard things to know. Um, it's just time of, of contacting Service Canada and getting that info. And, I, I, you know, we get a lot of questions, and you in particular get a lot of questions about, when, when should I take my CPP or my OAS? Yeah, and you know what? That's a bit of a moving target and a whole bunch of different reasons for it. So I don't know if we want to go into too much detail here. You know, generally speaking, I, I tend to think that 65 is, is the uh, the magic number. Um, but if you have health issues, if you have other things or longevity 
concerns, maybe you want to take it earlier. Um, and, and at the same token, perhaps um, you may not have as much savings or whatever else. Maybe you want to guarantee that income in the future and take it later. So there's there's sort of a whole range of different different people and there's a whole range of different um, choices to be made as you near closer to that. Yeah, and it requires some analysis. I think that's it, the point I wanted to say, right? Oh, yeah. Personal circumstances uh, are really what determines when you should be taking uh, let's just talk about CPP for a minute, because everybody mm -hmm. says, well, I want to take it early because I got a bird in the hand, right? But that might not be the best mathematical decision. Well, and it, it, it probably isn't, but we have to look at all angles on it, and you have to determine a couple of things, not just tax, but you have to figure out where, how much it is, how much I'm going to get. And a lot of people continue working after they start at age 60, and right. what's really funny about that is I've had, over the, the course of my career, um, a lot of people say, well, I'm going to take it early, and I'm going to give you the check. I'm going to invest the money, and I'll have more afterwards. <laughs> I have yet to see a check um, from a client to deposit their account on a monthly basis, and here's my CPP. It never happens because now I've got it. I'm going to, see, I'm going to use it. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, we're, uh, we're quickly running out of time here, but the last piece is we, we often get where do we get it. I mean, you had a really cool ex a couple of experiences this week yeah. where you were able to show people exactly where you're going to draw from. Is it a registered account, an RSP, a RIF, Lira? Is it a corporate account? Is it personal? You know, is it just savings, non-registered money? And how much you're going to take from each of these areas, and why, from a tax perspective? Well, and and uh, one of the key factors that we sort of walked with is is one of the questions that you know most people don't think about is what's the what do you plan for the future with that money too, Dave? And what I mean by that is um, is it is my plan to spend it all and it's a race to zero, or is my plan to spend spend it do well, but I expect to have uh, an estate for the future of right. my children and Without figuring out those questions, I can't backtrack and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. But think about it. If you own a closely held business, um, perhaps you're paying yourself a dividend. Well, now you're up for dividend tax credit. That causes a new problem because you've got the dividend tax credit. So the gross up on that income will actually affect your OAS, uh, old age security. So yep. you could potentially get a clawback. So we have to look at all those pieces and then show what the tax is going to be and how we're going to pull it out. Um, and so we can best derive the tax uh, or beat the tax man the best we can. Um, yet still providing a decent income and not trying to pull as much against your portfolio too quickly because yeah, it yeah. needs growth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the uh, you live on after-tax income, not pre-tax. Okay. Exactly. There's a lot to do there. And, I mean, hopefully if you're listening, you're taking away that there's lots of different options and that's where strategy becomes important. And there are answers to these questions. Um, so you don't have to sit there and, and guess and feel the uncertainty that there's answers to the questions. Anyways, this is part and parcel of what we're going to be talking about at our upcoming seminars. Now, um, it's important to note that the next one is on Tuesday, February the 19th, uh, but it's fully booked. So both the uh, both sessions are booked. So really, registrations are, we're taking now for March 26th. That's Tuesday, March 26th. It's going to be at the Crow-op, sorry, the Crowfoot Co-op Wine and Spirits. 7 o'clock is already full, unfortunately. 8.30 is open for registration. So you need to reserve a seat. Call us at 966-8400, or you can go online at More Than Money Radio dot uh, c uh, sorry dot com and you can register there now don't go away after the break because we're going to be talking to philip peterson about what's going on in the markets these days what can we expect for 2019 after a very strong start to the year you're on 770 chqr and more than money welcome back you're here with david andrew and we're here with philip peterson today joined by a regular recurring guest philip is the chief investment strategist of manulife investments philip welcome back to the show well thanks for having me um, we've got lots to talk about, and I'm not sure we can do it justice, but we've got literally 20 minutes to try to make some sense of what the heck happened in the fourth quarter of last year 
And what does 2019 look like given all, you know, all of how we finished last year? Let's maybe start with 2018. Um, give us a sense of that, you know, the last six weeks and all the volatility we saw. Yeah, 2018, the fourth quarter of 2018, I think, um, in part didn't surprise us, but then did. So the early start of the correction didn't surprise us. What tends to happen is as you start to see interest rates move higher, and that's what we saw in uh, September, early October, yep. interest rates moved up. You had the 10-year yield in the United States that broke above 3%, broke right. above its prior high. And when this happens, you get a repricing of risk, a repricing of the equity markets. And so this wasn't a surprise, nor should have been a surprise. Every single time that inflation goes higher and the Fed is raising rates, the PE multiple comes down, or you get a valuation adjustment. Right. But what took it from a correction to almost a bear market, and we were we splitting hairs here, if you want to round up or just say, well, no, the exact number was like 19.8% right. to the downside. Uh, what took it that far, in our view, was really a lot of fear around trade tensions between the United States and sure. China, you know, potential for weakening of the U.S. economy, global economy, and so on. And it just, you know, fear begets fear and momentum builds to the downside and you get what we saw. But yeah. um, but beside what we would say is the market went too far. Yeah, it was interesting. I know some, I'm going to put you on the spot for some language here because you think about how scary that was for people. And I know you talked to lots of people across the whole country and we talked to lots of people um, as well. So there, there was a tremendous amount of fear attached to that. But, but you wouldn't characterize that correction as anything more than a garden variety correction. Exactly. Maybe just address that a little bit yeah. because people are going, "Wow, man, I was terrified. What do you mean? Right. So this is where uh, fear drove us to the wrong decision. And, right. and what that wrong decision was, what we saw in, in December in the United States was uh, largest outflows or, or redemptions or people pulling money out of the market than we had seen, um, even including 2008. Wow. So it was just massive amounts of, of people just leaving the market on fear. And so why we say it was overdone uh, is because when you look at the fundamentals, yeah, is the global economy still growing? The answer was yes. Is the U.S. economy still growing? Yes. Um, is trade still positive? Yes. Is manufacturing still growing positively, albeit at a slower pace, but positively? The answer is yes. So everything fundamentally that uh, would would tell you if, if a recession was coming or not was saying, no, we don't see a recession. We see slower growth, but not a recession. And so the markets, unfortunately... Um, uh, it's a pendulum, right? Yeah. Momentum yeah. can can uh, take you further from where we should have been. Okay, so let's maybe just summarize 2018. You had some thoughts coming in in 2018. Clearly, we understand what happened here, the, the volatility we had at the end of 2018. But maybe just walk us through sort of what, what went as expected and what your disappointments were. Okay, so what went as expected, uh, the Fed was going to raise rates, interest rates were going to be higher, and fixed income was going to be a disappointing year. Here, too, though, we didn't think it was going to be quite as negative as it was. We right. didn't think that rates would have moved up quite as sharply as they did. Um, but nonetheless, you know, it, uh, when we look at fixed income, you're down 1% or 2%. On a relative basis, now this is really hard to, to yep. wrap our head around, you know, you, if you're down in bonds, the, the modest downside that we saw in bonds still mitigated the volatility of equities, despite equities being down and, and bonds being down. Everything was down. That, I would say, you know, didn't surprise us that much that we were going to see a softer fixed income market, you know, weaker returns out of bonds. Didn't surprise us that much that we saw valuation adjusted lower on, on the U.S. equity side. It went deeper than we thought, but you know, January yep. we saw the rebound, so we're yep. where we should have been. Uh, what, the biggest disappointment was in the international markets. Huh. And here we thought that international equities represented a very attractive upside potential to us. Uh, valuation was really cheap. Earnings growth was strong. The the uh, global economy provided a backdrop that international equities could have performed well in. 
what went wrong um, because they underperformed our expectations um, quite significantly. If we had to point it to something, it's not the fundamentals. Right. Valuation is still cheap. Earnings did come in quite nicely. It would be Brexit, for example. So it's negative sentiment around Brexit, around Turkey, around um, uh, Italy. Yep. You know, we had issues there. I think that weighed on, on market sentiment. Yeah, I think you're right. It was a bit of a sour mood uh, right across. Now, let, let's so let's um, people are going to be opening December statements. Some have delayed doing it when they open. There's going to be some deep breathing exercises going on, right? People are going to see negatives. It was a weird year. You said we've got you know better than ninety percent of world assets fell last year, right? So very very difficult to find any place to hide. All right, so there are some people that panicked. They're trying to decide what to do now, right? There are some people that stayed in. So let's let's start with 2019's forecast. Okay, so what do we see in 2019? And I want to know a little bit about not just uh, from a fundamental perspective, but what you're laying awake at night, right? What are some of those digital risks that if they hit and what could the downside look like? So give us, first of all, the base case. Okay, so the base case is that we see a much improved environment in 2019. Uh, interest rates aren't going to go up as much, so bonds... Um, are in a much better environment today than what we had last year. Right. And equities as well. Given the starting point of valuation uh, and earnings growth, that isn't going to be as strong as we saw last year, but it's still going to be positive. We think that uh, despite the, the rally that we've already seen, or consider you know, in addition to the rally that we've already seen, mid to upper single digits through the remainder of the year. So it's going to be, we would say, all in. And above average year. Right. If, it, if average year is like somewhere between 8 and 11%, we think this could be modestly above average. Right. That's going to freak some people out that are listening, right? Because it doesn't feel that way. And, and remember, we're talking in Alberta, too. We've got a, it's tough times going on. It doesn't feel that way. The headlines don't necessarily indicate that. Um, we held a, co a client conference call, as you're aware of, last week. And one of the things that I mentioned on that client conference call is valuations do matter, right? Real earnings and valuations on those earnings do matter. So um, it's going to be a above average year for equities. It's going to be above average year or a decent year for bonds. Cash was the best performer last year. Let's talk a little bit about how you might be positioning a portfolio thinking about um, those that, that asset allocation, but also where. Because, you know, we've talked, you and I have talked about U.S. equities and the valuations there relative to international and the comment you just made. So break it down a little bit for us. Okay. Um First thing, I do want to come back to when you said people panic. Mm. Now, we have a rule that when we look at the environment, the first thing is, are we in a recession or not? Right. Are we headed towards a recession? So the answer is no. Right. We don't see any typical signs of recession. Now, Canada, we do see some economic headwinds. But if you're not in a recession, then it really does come back down to fundamentals of valuation, price, and what you get for that right. earnings. When the markets are down 10%, what we've seen is outside of a recession, you buy. Right. You know, it's almost like just blindly, not completely, and just nor would I advise this <laughs> all out. Um, but, you know, kind of the rule of thumb that we've seen over time is if the markets are down 10 and you can rule out risk of recession, yep. then you buy. Right. And you have a very high probability of being positive 12 months forward. And we've seen the rebound. So those that locked in their losses panicked in December missed a fantastic rally in January. Right. As far as statements are concerned, don't open your January or December <laughs> statement. Yeah, I would say because the environment has changed. It's been a complete 180. Um, just look at the January statement instead right. uh, and the year over there, there, and I think that's a better indicator of the environment that we're in. What do you tell somebody that, that did get scared? You said you alluded to the fact net flows out of the markets were the highest it's ever been. So we know there's lots of people that made that decision. They're now 
faced with this daunting decision about do I get back in, when do I get back in, what's the catalyst to get back in, what do you say to those people? I would say do like we do, right? We take a 12-month view. First, it breaks my heart anytime I see that because you know people lock in their losses at the bottom of a market. It's not what we want to do. It's not yeah. what we try and teach our, our clients to do. But if they've done that, it's like, okay, you know what? Hopefully now those fears have been put aside, you know, that the world isn't falling apart. And there is a lot of political noise out there, but that's largely what it is right now, political noise. Yep. So I would say if you are focused on the long term uh, and we continue to see a positive economic environment over the next 12 months, then start to get back in, right? Where do you get back in? Just about anywhere in the world looks attractive. You know, there are relative differences between, say, Canadian equities, U.S. equities, yep. international equities, and so on. But I think, you know, uh, in most markets around the world, you'll make money over the next 12 months. Cool. Okay. I'll tell you what. That's a good place to take a break here. But when we come back from break, what I want to know is what's keeping you awake at night? And if you're wrong, what does that downside look like? Stick around for that. After the break, you're on 770 CHQR and more than money. Welcome back here with Dave and Andrew. We've got special guests with us today, Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist at Manulife Investments. And before the break, Philip, we were talking a little bit about, you know, 2018, kind of how it shaped up, how scary it was in the last quarter. 2019, you're, you know, the summary here is that it, it looks pretty good. Like asset classes have definitely repriced, looks pretty decent. Um, I want to know, though, what you're worried about like there's lots of headline risk the question is is it real is it news or is it noise and i want to get a sense from you of you know if you're looking around the world at what risks you feel are are real and what we need to keep an eye on okay i think uh if you look at the headlines a couple of ones that are jumping out right now brexit i don't necessarily think brexit is a real risk i mean it's it's a disruption it's it's a little bit more uncomfortable but as far as the markets are concerned uh, I don't think it's something that is going to have a lasting impact. Companies have been uh, aware of the Brexit risks over the last two years. They've been preparing for it. And I think if it does ultimately become a hard Brexit, then they flip the switch. They know exactly what plan B is. Right. So we can. Uh, that's going to be uh, driven a headline, uh, driving headlines. And I think that uh, will drive sentiment. But let's kind of put that away. The real one uh, is not necessarily trade with China, but the Chinese economy on its own. Okay. And for, I've been following the Chinese economy for the better part of, you know, a decade and a half, um, maybe even longer than that. And I've always been very comfortable with it. It's a centrally planned economy that, that tends to yep. benefit when you don't have an opposition, right? That's, yeah. it, that's the good and the bad about it. Uh, but it was something, it, one, we've seen the Chinese economic data weaken. Right right, slowly over the course of the last year, not to the point that we would be overly concerned, but some of the messages out of President Xi, for example, a couple of weeks ago in a speech to the party, he addressed the importance of being aware of the social consequences of a slower economic environment. Mm -hmm. And for him to point this out means that the government is aware that things are slowing. They're aware of what it might mean. And it, this time... They, they need to make sure that they can, well, they've managed it well, but they need to continue to manage it very, very well. Bit of a tightrope at this time. Isn't exactly, it? Yeah. exactly. Now, uh, they've been transitioning from being an export-driven mm -hmm. economy to a consumption-driven economy. Well, and that's the problem, right? If now you're relying on the consumers, your population, to drive your growth, well, your population better be happy, yep. fed, employed, yep. and so on. So this is something that, um, it, it's not one that I said is a high probability risk, but it's the one that it's so difficult to try and really nail down what exactly is going on from an economic environment from China 
because of the data uh, and the questions around the validity of the data that we get right. so it's one that you say yeah i hope we got this right i think we have this right but let's keep paying attention to it as much as we can because if it's wrong this is the number two economy in the world it will have far-reaching consequences to the global economy and and there's a secular trend here that's been going on for a very very long time which is this transition in their type of economy like they they want their economy to look, look more like a developed world economy right and is it at six to six and a half percent can they sustain that, or, or should we continue to expect to see it just naturally slow as this, you know, just massive manufacturing infrastructure build is sort of abated, and now they're moving more to a domestic demand, a consumer-driven economy? Yeah, well, there's another factor to consider as well, and that's population growth. And we yeah. know population yeah. growth in China is slowing down. Yeah. So we don't necessarily need to keep growing at 6 7% uh, on an annual basis um, just because you don't have the population growth that's required. Or that, that's going to demand that. Yeah. And so I think we will see China naturally slow down. But what they want to do is they want to manage what's called a soft landing. Yep. Right? As opposed yep. to just a hard landing where you get a reset on the economy. Um, so I, I think this is going to be the trend. And it's what the government does to manage that trend. Now, what have they been doing over the last couple of months? They've been cutting taxes for 75% of the population, right? So that's quite meaningful to get the consumption economy going. You bet. They have been cutting interest rates. They've been re cutting the re required reserve ratios at the banks to allow banks to lend more capital. Um, they've been encouraging loans to small businesses. So they've been putting in place the stimulus to to uh, stimulate the economy. And yep. I think we'll see that. Yep. I think we'll see that. But it's the, you know, well, it, if something could go wrong, what could go wrong? Yeah. This is it. I'm not concerned about the U.S. I'm not concerned about what's going on in Europe. Um, this is the one that, that we continue to watch. Okay. And that'll that'll surprise people, too. So let's, let's deal head on with this U.S.-China uh, relationship, trade relationship. Okay. Um, I think you and I are probably on the same page that the high probability outcome is they resolve it because it's not good for anybody if they don't. But there is a probability that we get a, a policy mistake somehow, given the different factors at play and the different personalities at play. So let's take the worst-case scenario. Let's assume that we get to this place where they can't resolve it. Uh, we've got tariffs applied on all U.S. and Chinese-traded goods somewhere in the order of 25%, perhaps higher for autos. What does this, look, what does this world look like? Well, ultimately, the, you know, if we did end up in that worst-case scenario, which I don't think is going to happen. I, I put less than a 30% probability that we would see that because I believe the administration in the United States wants a deal, they, right. any deal. It right. doesn't matter what it's going to look like. It's, it's going to be sold to us as the best deal ever. Uh, they want a deal. Um, and, and the Chinese want to get this headwind moved aside. Right. Uh, however, if it went that far and if we did see tariffs on, on the upwards of $500 billion in goods that comes in from China into yep. the United States— yep. The consumer is what is is who pays for that, right? right? And this is what I think is is largely misunderstood. It's not the Chinese that pay for it. Right. The Chinese pay for it in terms of perhaps falling exports. Yep. The U.S. pays for it in terms of increased tariffs and in, inflation. And, yeah. and exactly, yeah. and the consumer is the one that pays for it. So ultimately, I think what this would do is it would trigger a recession, right? And that would be kind of the worst case scenario. Now, from a market perspective, given where valuation is today, yeah, I would expect earnings would drop ten to fifteen percent, valuation drop ten to fifteen percent. This would be more of like a garden variety correction, a garden variety bear market. It would not be a repeat of 08 where we were down sixty five percent. You know. 2000 through 2003, down 65%. I think unlikely to look like that. Um, but no one wants that. Right. No one. But wants it could be, all. in fairness. You, you, you know, equities could fall 25 to 35% somewhere in there if this worst-case scenario plays out. Again, when we use the garden variety people, you know, it, it, they think something different than what it can be. They forget 
I think there's a complacency with investors that was developed over 16 and 17 about risk, right? We forget that equities in just regular terms can swing by very, very wide margins, yeah. right? Okay, so we give that a pretty low probability. Um, maybe let's just summarize this because we've talked about some scary stuff here. Uh, in the last uh, in the last segment, we talked a little bit about what the base case is. Summarize it, and then I want to talk a little bit about positioning for people that are you know moving into retirement, how they should be thinking about their portfolio. Certainly, the base case is a much better year in 2019 than 2018, even with the rally that we've seen yep. already in the month of, of January. Uh, that we still think that there's room for this market to go because, again, let's rule out the risk of recession. We don't see signs of recession anywhere. Let's look at valuation. Valuation is very, very attractive, much more so than it's been in the last couple of years. Earnings growth, while probably not going to be as strong as we saw last year, sure. is still going to be positive. Yep. And so those three things tell us that, yes, we still have a positive outlook for equities uh, in most areas around the world uh, going forward over the next 12 months. And bonds, where interest rates aren't going to move up as much as they have over the last two years. In right. fact, if at all, bonds are in a much better position. So uh, a, a balanced portfolio, in our view, looks much more attractive this year than what we saw. Positioning-wise, given the fact that we still see decent upside, you know, modestly better upside in equities than fixed income, we're slightly askew equities. So in a balanced portfolio, where a benchmark would be 60% equity, 40% yep. fixed income, we're 65-35. And uh, we continue to favor international. We like the U.S., but the best upside from a valuation and earnings perspective is really in international and in Canada. Right. Now, this, this uh, is, a, is a real change for our view, but Canadian equities, uh, largely driven by the financial sector and energy sector, look attractive. Hmm. Very attractive there. Quick comment on the energy sector. You're in Calgary here. Yeah. What makes it attractive? So what we are seeing is you got the curtailment of production in Alberta. That's positive for prices. you got OPEC that's going to be cutting. That's positive for prices. And the lack of investment in the United States is likely to result in, in flattening uh, production mm -hmm. growth. In fact, if we might even see some declines in production before the end of the year. So tighter supply through 2019, which should help boost prices higher at a time when energy stocks themselves are trading at 15-year lows. Do we get? Do we capture any of that? Do we get that in, in, in Alberta and in Canada here? I believe we do. I, I think the, the, global, um, uh, the global response to oil prices is, is a reflation of valuations not only in U.S. Well, in fact, we would say Canadian energy is even yeah. more attractive than U.S. energy right now, and that's going to be recognized by foreigners. Yeah. Okay, well, that's good news. I want to thank you for joining us, uh, Philip. It's always a pleasure when we get you, and especially when we're in studio together. I enjoy that a lot. Oh, I'm very happy to be here. Okay, I want to remind you before we sign off on this segment that we've got our next seminar coming up. Uh, in fact, I'm sorry, the next seminar is on February the 19th, but both of those sessions are now completely booked. We do have our March 26th session at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine, Spirits, and Beer. The 7 o'clock session is full, but the 8.30 is still open for registration, but we're running out of seats quickly. Please give us a call at 966-8400 to reserve your seat, or you can go to morethanmoneyradio.com, and you can do it there. Okay, stick around after the break. We'll try to make sense of all this. You're on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Andrew. You're on 770 CHQR. You're listening to More Than Money. Um, you know, the top of the hour, top of the show, we, we were talking a little bit about income, how to draw it, right? yeah. how to figure out the answers to that sustainability question. We've just spent, uh, you know, 20 minutes with, with Philip talking about what 2019 looks like. You know, and I'm not sure that facts can arrest fear. Okay. So I want to I kind of want to tie these things together, Andrew, and, and get your thoughts on it, because you, um, you know, and Sarah on our on your team as part of our team are really very heavily involved with clients figuring out how to make sure that they protect themselves 
get the income that they need to support that lifestyle. And structure becomes very important. So if you think about 2019 and, um, you know, there's, there's certain problems that we've seen uh, creep up. And I mm -hmm. think the next two months are going to be highly volatile. I don't think we're necessarily getting to a complete resolution on a U.S.-China trade deal, right? So as the headlines become a little more sour around that, you're seeing equity markets trade down. You know, we've got, I'll give you one good piece um, or one good takeaway is, is both sides of Brexit, like the guys that want to leave and the guys that want to stay can at least agree on one thing now, that they're going to take it right to the last minute. Oh, for sure. Right? This is going down to the wire. Uh, and it is going to get more and more stressful over the course of the, you know, the next five weeks as they're trying yeah. to figure out their positions. And we may, in fact, end up with a hard Brexit, right? We will have to wait, uh, wait and see. But it doesn't look like there's any softening on the, the European Union side. Theresa May is not being able to make any progress there. Uh, Labour Party opposition doesn't seem to want to play ball. I mean, that's just a mess. Yes. All right. So let's agree for at least the time being that uh, that volatility is going back, back up, even given what... Um, uh, you know, what Philip said, hey, there's a lot of fear. So how do you structure a portfolio? Like, what should you be thinking about if you're trying to go through these particular points in time and still just want to go and enjoy your life? Well, and it, you have to really look at a whole bunch of different factors. Once again, where, you know, it, I hate to use the accountant term, but it, it, it depends. Yeah. Um, it depends on what you've got. It depends on what your lifestyle is. It depends on uh, what, what uh, your retirement vision is. Or retirement vision is. Um, and without those things, you can't structure these things correctly. But and structure it, is important. Oh, it's absolutely critical because it's not it's not the same anymore. And what I mean by that, and you, you and Faisal had this conversation before, so it's not a surprise to you, but you're drawing, you're creating your own paycheck now. That's right. This is no longer a pension, right? I'm going to go and work and I'm going to put more money into it. Now it's it's the reverse. I'm drawing funds out on a regular basis to sustain my lifestyle. This is my new paycheck, and it's different. And so structure totally matters. So if you have that ability where you can, you know, as we've done before, the income and the growth bucket, we're able to put um, a certain amount of time frame or, or dollars into an income bucket and sustain over a period of time, protecting against inflation, protecting against um, volatility within the market. So it allows the growth of a portfolio to move up and down, but eventually move higher. But let, let, let's make this real, right? I mean, we were yeah. talking to real people, you know, this week. And, of course, the last quarter of last year was highly volatile. But think about this this notion of an income bucket. If your income bucket uh, is is riddled with dividend-paying stocks, as an example, well, you, you had a pretty scary ride in the fourth quarter of well, you uh, still last year. you still do the the, the quarter of this year because if you were in preferred shares, yeah. they they came down significantly, right. and they're still down today. Right now, that, what's interesting about about that is your dividends may not have been cut, but you could see the capital value of your portfolio, that income bucket, fall, and that has an mm -hmm. emotional effect on people. So, so what we talk about in these buckets uh, over time, and we we absolutely think this is the way to bulletproof you know, yourself from these kinds of, of uh, market crashes is you need to have some very low risk assets in that income yeah. bucket. It's producing predictable and sustainable income. Your capital values aren't swinging around. You insulate yourself from the ups and downs of whatever happens in the short term on U.S.-China trade or Brexit or whatever the issue of the day might be so that you don't have to worry about that piece of your portfolio. And what I'm saying is you could actually layer in things like GICs in cash, Right, so yep. if you if you had one year what we call a cash wedge in your portfolio that you were drawing down on income, it was in no way, shape, or form at all affected. 
by the volatility up or down that we've seen over the past three months. That's right. Nothing. There's no risk to it, right? It's there. It's available for you to spend. That's what we're trying to get across to people is, is these, this bucket system that we talk about is a way to structure a portfolio properly given the multiple objectives that you now have as you move into retirement. It's not just about growth over time anymore. That's right. Right? So structure becomes important. We like that income bucket um, from a stability and a protection point of view. Now, well, and you can still have an income bucket. You know, you know, we've looked at it many ways, and you know, one of five and ten year because it provides you know a little bit more certainty and insulation against the market. But let's yeah. say you don't have the ability to do that right. for whatever reason. There's nothing wrong with having a one or two year cash wedge because you know a one or two years worth of cash isn't going to hurt you over the long term. It's going to insulate you in the event that we're going to have volatility. Right. Oh. That's kind of what we're seeing right now. And, oh, we kind of expect that's going to continue moving forward. Volatility just disappeared for a while. Right. I, I would say it's back. Yeah. You know, and what's interesting is, again, I'm, we're not suggesting it has to be cash, but it has to be no. instruments that are low volatility. But this is different thinking. People have been trained their whole lives has been accumulating wealth to try to get growth, right? That's right. And, and here's the point. Things are changing as you're moving into a point where you're going to retire and you're going to draw down on your savings. You need to change the investment strategies to reflect the, the new goals that you have. Now, growth is still important, though. Oh, it's, it's totally important. It never changes because your lifestyle needs to be maintained. Well, and there's inflation. Yeah. How long are people living now? You've, you've alluded to that already in the show, right? Well, you're, you're planning horizons on average or what? Well, now I'm looking 30 and 35 years. Like if you retire at 60 and, and, and you live uh, and you're married, or if you're married at 65, retired, um, chance, and chances are you're going to be going, uh, one of you will go to age 95. There's a very high possibility yeah. of that at this point in time. Yeah, the actuaries would say one, one in three chance. Yeah. So, the planning horizons aren't kind of what our parents' generation was, right? Our parents mm -hmm. retired, and their, their retirement uh, wasn't nearly as long as what this generation uh, is facing right now. And it may, again, be different as medical science extends life uh, even longer into the future. But the planning horizons represent some serious uh, problems from a planning perspective, right? Because if a portfolio has to sustain a lifestyle on an inflation-adjusted basis... Right for thirty-five yes. years, even at low inflation rates, you still be, have to grow. There's, you there's still no, have to grow. There's no way out of it. And if you're expecting to earn sixty thousand dollars for, of course, your lifetime, well, the next year it's going to be sixty-one and change, and it's going to go up yep. every year because yep. you. I'm sorry. Last time I checked, gas still goes up in price when I go to the pump. Groceries still cost more every day. Yep. Everything costs a little bit more. Everything costs a bit more. That's right. So the um, the this the structure though those four buckets. You're I'm just trying to give you a sense of. If you have these multiple goals, why we think that bucket uh, approach makes sense. It helps people uh, separate the the different kinds of assets they have to and understand and where they're going to get it from. Because ultimately, you get a ton of questions about how do I draw this down in the most tax-efficient manner I can, knowing that your registered programs have a different tax treatment than your corporate assets, than your, your uh, after-tax savings, right? Uh, whether I've got interest income coming in mm -hmm. from real estate or bond. I mean, all of these things have different... Well, and we to. always have to backtrack from what the original goal was and then go back from that. But if we don't know what those things are or even what the goal is, if the goal is only to get bigger, that's not really an answer. Right. And we have to move a little bit tighter into that. Um, but just on, a, on another note, like, you know, what if you have... Uh, a, well, part of your goal is estate, but another part is taking care of um, your children or making your grandchildren's uh, uh, educational needs. What do you do? Right. Like, are there options? Sure there are. 
Right. You have to actually look at these things carefully and say, this is this is part of my strategy or part of my goal. Yeah, I mean, that, that was an interesting conversation we had yeah. this week uh, where there was a specific legacy wish. Um, it was a living legacy because they wanted to fund, they have 10 grandchildren, and they wanted to at least partially fund uh, education for mm -hmm. those 10 grandkids. So that is a separate and distinct strategy from their income bucket. Absolutely. Right? Separate from their growth bucket, right? Separate from their health bucket. So these are these are all components. But when it's put together properly, you point to it and you say, great, there's the grandkids' education fund, right? There's my income bucket right there. It's doing what it needs to do. And then you start measuring or tracking just to make sure each of those pieces are doing what it's supposed to do. Well, and if you do it correctly, Dave, you're going to have peace of mind. Right. And you're not going to be worried about whether the TSX went up 10% this year or whether the S&P 500 went up. 15 right it's it's not important anymore it's important to track my number track my portfolio but understand that i'm hitting my individual goals and i'm doing it successfully and i can put a tick on that box and say i'm okay yeah well for all of you listening that want to maximize returns every single <laughs> every single year based on whatever the best performing index index is you make sure you contact andrew masson on that comment anyways <laughs> throwing you under the bus there buddy i'm going for it okay let's uh let's wrap this up we've got a we've had a great show uh let's remind everybody about our upcoming seminar yeah, um, that seminar is uh, coming on uh, February 19th, but unfortunately, it is fully booked. So um, our next seminar is on Tuesday, March 26th at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine Spirits Beer. Um, and our 8.30 seminar is open for registration at this point in time. So if you'd like to get a seat, please give us a call at 403-966-8400. Once again, 403-966-8400. 8400 8, or um, reach us on uh, more than money radio.com and you can access any of our past segments also on more than money radio.com or have them uh, directly delivered to you uh, search for our podcast on uh, in the iced um, sorry apple uh, podcast store your favorite podcast app it's called more than money chqr more than money chqr you can get our apple pod or our podcast delivered to you every single week thanks for tuning into another edition of more than money on 770 chqr David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.